everything before trap, everyone always paid respect to the generation before or the pioneers. There was always a lot of respect, you know, for the for the KRS ones or you know, he's a new jack really. I'm thinking going way before him. There's always that right, respect. Right. But now I don't feel that from trap artists. I think that they're like, We don't care about who's K R S one, who's who's Melly right. Mel, we don't care. Who's you know, like we don't that. know we don't care about anyone. Who's Q tip? We don't care. And I don't I'm not mad at them, but I know that it's the job of teenagers and the young and the twenty somethings to come up with the new thing. They've done it. They've been successful at it. I don't like it, but they're successful. They have literally come up with a new thing. It's like nothing I've really heard before. But just know this, how you displace somebody before you, you're going to get displaced. This your boy, Fresh for Graffiti Talk Radio, and I got my partner, Clarence Bumbleclot. Where you at? Right here, homie. You know the deal. Hip-hop heads. Before there was your MTV raps, and before there was Rap City, there was Graffiti Rocks, the pioneer show for the hardcore hip-hop heads. This show was groundbreaking. They had everything. It featured rapping, DJing, b-boy breakdancing, graffiti art, and hip-hop definitions. It is now a valued treasure in the hip-hop history, and today... We're going to be talking about the treasure with his founding father, a pioneer himself in hip-hop in his own right. So let's give it up for the Honorable Michael Holman. What's going on, Mr. Michael? Great to have hey, you on man. the show. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I very much appreciate it. Now, before we get started, I, I, I got to say this. Don't try this on your dad's stereo, only on the hip-hop supervision. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, yes, I said something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, getting started, you know, before we go into it, can you tell uh, the fans they they don't know much about you? Can you you one of the founding fathers, one of the pioneers of hip hop? So, can you tell them some of the stuff that you had did early in your career? Well, um, you know, I thank um, my good friend Fat Five Freddy for. Uh, turning me on to the game, you know, he 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 and I got together back in '79 and and created an event called the um, Canal Zone Party at a friend of ours, an English artist named Stan Peskin, in his loft. We put together this party that was meant to introduce the Fabulous Five, which is a graffiti uh, collective, and the Fabulous Five uh, is where Fat Five Freddy gets his name. He was the Fabulous Five's representative, and and of course, one of the most important uh, writers in the Fabulous Five was Lee Kionez, and so these are like graffiti art, hip hop pioneers all around. And it was, a, and when we had that party, it was the same night that I met uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and we started our 
avant-garde downtown uh, band called Gray. But but what was interesting about the Canal Zone Party, it was the first time that hip-hop artists, in this case, you know, graffiti artists, were introduced to the downtown art scene um, that people like, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring populated. And really the... Um, the, the the downtown art scene was critical in bringing hip hop to the rest of the world, so that that party was a big deal, um, and, and and it was the beginning of my of my uh, uh, you know involvement in hip hop culture. I think the next thing that happened was Fat Five Freddy had a had a, an art show at the Mud Club, and Bambada performed there, DJed at the Mud Club downtown. I no, met Bambata there. No. We became that friends, no. and uh, we from from that point on, you know, I started going up to the Bronx, and and I think the first thing that I did uh, in this was um, with Bambata anyway was I started interviewing him for an article in the East Village Eye, and in that article. Believe it or not, uh, it came out in January '82. You know, it was written in '81, in the fall of '81. This is a, a a newspaper that only comes out like maybe four times a year, and so well, even though well. everything was written, I wrote about four articles on hip hop for the East Village Eye, and one of them was an interview of Bambata. And in it, um, we're talking about you know what hip hop is, and in that article, you know, based on my interview with Bambata, I define hip hop, you know, as as this movement with multiple elements, et cetera, et cetera, all coming from Bambada. It was the first time that hip hop had ever been written in a the term had ever been written in a publication and defined. So that was one of the first historic things that I did was as a journalist, you know, yeah. uh publish that term. I, I didn't invent it, of course not but but it was the first time that it was ever in any kind of publication, even flyers or anything else. So oh, wow. it was it was mad early on. So, um, but before that, I'm I'm filming uh, break dancers in New York City. I heard about actually heard about it, and again, Fat Five Freddy comes up again because in um, in this would have been 1980, I think. Uh, another really interesting uh, filmmaker named Henry Chalfant who was known to photograph um, a lot of graffiti, you know, burners on, on trains, on the subway trains. He was, he was the, he is still, you know, the, 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 the master of, of, of graffiti photography. And he wanted to put together something actually called graffiti rock years before right. I did graffiti rock downtown in the East village, which wow. involved rock steady crew dancing uh, Fat Five Freddy was rapping. I think Ram LZ was there. Um, who was on the turntable? Somebody was on turntables. Somebody interesting. But the event never happened because this gang called the Ballbusters, this Dominican gang from Manhattan, uh, hated Rocksteady Crew for reasons I don't really know, but there was beef between them. And before the event happened, the Ballbusters showed up and it created this whole melee and a big fight, and 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 so the event never happened. But I must yeah. have, I must have gotten that name Graffiti Rock in my head, unconsciously. So 
so that <laughs> three or four years later, when I did my show, I called it Graffiti Rock, and I sometimes I feel bad about it because you know I I I'm a very creative person, and I don't need any help in coming up with great names. I'm a really right. good I'm really good right. with titles, and uh, but to this day, I know that that I accidentally named my show Graffiti Rock after this event that didn't happen that was uh was a Henry Chalfant event and again Fat Five Freddy was involved in that so you know he continually pops up in the early days with me but it was at that I went to the event this graffiti rock event in the East Village and um uh and again like I said it didn't happen you know it was broken up the whole thing kind of got squashed but outside the event I met this this breakdance crew called IBM Incredible Breakmasters and I was like you know I heard about you know and, and at that time Gray my band with Basquiat had broken up and at that time I was looking for things to do in film I was really filming all kinds of crazy interesting things and I heard about these kids that spun on their heads and I was like wow what is that and this would have been like 80 1980 81 and and so I'm looking for these kids all over town, like, who are these breakdancers? What is this? Spinning on your head, what is this? And so I went to that event thinking I would meet some breakdancers because it was advertised in that respect. And sure enough, I meet the IBM crew and befriend. I befriend them and I start filming them. I find all these opportunities to get them gigs downtown and film them. And then they take me uptown to meet people. I... I'm, uh, you know, I, I then through them meet Rocksteady crew and film them in, at the battle at Lincoln center against, um, but I'm just giving you the facts. So, so, you know, I, 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 through, through this crew, IBM, they're in a battle with dynamic rockers and Rocksteady crew at Lincoln center. And because of them, I know about this. I go to this, I film it. And, and then that's when I meet, um, uh, Crazy Legs and Rocksteady Crew, and 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 I make this film called Catch a Beat, which is the and so here's another first. Catch a Beat. When I finished this film, which involved that battle, and it involved you know DJs and rappers and all that uh, in New York, it's a short film again called Catch a Beat. It's the first hip hop film ever made. So not only do I uh, am I the writer who publishes uh, uh, hip hop for the first time, but I make this film called Catch a Beat. That's the first hip-hop film, you know, the first one that anyone had, mev- had, had, had ever made with credits and, and, you know, with a beginning and end. And, and, you know, the rest of it was just footage that people had on their Super 8, maybe rolls of Super 8 or something in their closet. <laughs> I actually made a film, a short film, and that was, that was uh, you know, Catch a Beat. And from there, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, to bringing Malcolm McLaren, who created the Sex Pistols, the punk rock band from the wow. earlier 70s, bringing him up to the Bronx to introduce him to Bambata. And then, and, then, and then Malcolm McLaren, he loves what I show him about hip-hop culture, and he asked me to put together a review, a hip-hop review, to open up for Bow Wow Wow, who he was managing at the time. You guys remember Bow Wow Wow? There's a, there's nah. a group from England. Oh, of course. Yeah. They were, you know, they're part of the new romantics, you know, like Boy, uh, Boy George and Culture Club and and and, okay, and okay. Uh, Adamant, that whole scene that came after punk. Bow Wow Wow was part of that, and so they right, had a show, okay. right? And they had a show at the at the um, 
at a club called the Ritz, and and Malcolm McLaren was their manager, and he asked me to put together a, a review to open up for for uh, Bow Wow Wow. So I, I I by this time I was already friends with Rocksteady Crew and kind of an unofficial manager of that crew, an agent, if you will. I already knew Bambata and 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 um, Jazzy J and Ike C, yeah. all from the Zulu Nation, and 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 I had graffiti artist friends like Brim. And I put together this whole show to open up for Bow Wow Wow before they came on that had all the elements of hip-hop. And that was a first. Now, keep in mind, you had hip-hop artists performing uptown in Harlem, in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, and Queens for years before I even came to New York. I came to New York in 78. I, I didn't do anything new in that respect, but what I did new on that date, in it was September 81 at the Ritz downtown, what was new about that was all the elements of hip-hop were on stage at the same time. Back in the day, before that, you would have, you know, MCs and, and you know, rappers, MCs, DJs performing. But they never performed with, with breakdancers. And they never right, did things right. with graffiti artists. I put all those elements together on stage, I think, for the first time. And that was September 15th, 1981. And then from that, this English chick was there at the show. She knew Malcolm. Malcolm was English, of course. And she had this spot. Her name was Ruza Blue. She had this spot called Negril. She, uh, every Thursday night, she had this spot. And she, was, she inherited it from Cosmos, who was the manager of the Clash. And so it wasn't her club. It was, it, was, it was a Jamaican club. It was like a Rasta Jamaican club. But every Thursday night, it was open to whatever Cosmos from the Clash wanted to do. He got busy. He gave it to Ruza Blue to manage. So she was doing like all kinds of different things, new wave punk stuff there. But when she came to the show at the Ritz that I had the, I call it the Zulu Nation throwdown in, like I said, in September 15th, 1981, she came to that show because she knew Malcolm McLaren. She saw the review, introduced herself to me, told me that she had this club, Negril, named after the city in, in, uh, in, in Jamaica. Uh, and and she had this Thursday night there, and would I bring my review to perform every Thursday night at her spot? And I was like, yeah, great. I mean, and I saw the, the, the lights went off and the doors opened. This was the first, this was the opportunity I'd been looking for for a couple of years as I had, following behind Fab Five Freddy's footsteps, I had sort of taken this role as a hip-hop pioneer, as a promoter, as an empresario. I didn't think of myself as a pioneer at the time. And it was like, okay, this is magical. To have a hip-hop club, the first hip-hop club downtown, didn't exist ever before. Uptown, of course, in the Bronx, of course. But downtown didn't exist before. And what was significant about that is having a hip-hop spot downtown allowed for the media, for the press, New York press, national press, press, international press, to come to my club in the East Village and witness this new movement that they would never have gone up to the Bronx to see. They would have been too afraid to go up to the Bronx. They would have been too afraid to go up to Harlem. They wouldn't have known. Bringing it down to the East Village made it easy for them. It, it, it put it on a platter for them. And because of that, BBC did a documentary based on hip-hop and, and, and BAM and, 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 and uh, Herc and everybody else. Uh, the Japanese press came, they did things, and it allowed for a tour 
of hip hop to go to to uh, London, to Tokyo before it even left New York, before it even went to Philadelphia. There was already like you know artists <laughs> going to like Japan and to and to and That's to England crazy. because it wow. was made accessible to them through my spot with Rosa Blue at Negril. Because it was downtown awesome. and New York is a media. <laughs> and so then from there, obviously, you know, Ruza went on to move her move the club to Roxy's, which was historic. And I was like, you know, screw that. I want to put this on a bigger platform. I want to put this on television. And I started doing right. hip-hop TV shows on cable access, you know, small little cable access, you know, where only a couple of thousand people see it maybe. And eventually, you know, I made it happen in on Graffiti Rock. And that's the long, long, you know, setup to how I got to Graffiti Rock, you know. Wow. Now right. you are open to ask questions. <laughs> wow. No, that's all good. Look, but look, before we get into that, now, the footage you said that y'all had with, with BBC, do you still have some of that old footage? Oh, of course. I have all my, you see, my, my archive, if you will, which, my archive being all of my footage, all my hip hop footage, my photographs, photographs of other people, photographs taken by other people that I own or footage or whatever, my music, everything I did with Jean-Michel Basquiat and Gray, everything I did in hip hop with the New York City Breakers, you know, oh, that's another thing. At Negril, you know, I wanted to have battles, you know, Rocksteady Crew would perform every Thursday night and I said, you know, come on, let's have a battle. So they brought down the Floor Masters yeah. and I was blown away by the Floor Masters how athletic they were, and I realized, wait a second, I want to create my own all-star athletic crew, and, and that's, that was the genesis of the New York City Breakers, which is a whole other chapter in my history or my, my role as a hip-hop pioneer. But, but the point is, is that all of that footage, all the music I created, all the photographs, the clothes, the, everything that, that a lot of, most everything that I, that I created in hip-hop is now part of the uh, archives at the Library of the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center in New York City. But then some things, like a master tape of graffiti rock, the clothes I wore, on the, the, the Italian knit pony hair, black pony hair, Italian knit sweater that I wore on the show, uh, some of those things are at the Smithsonian uh, African American, National African American Museum of, of, you know, of, of, of History and Culture. So I have some of nice. my archives and my, my, my artifacts are, are in the Smithsonian Af- African-American Museum as well, which I'm very proud of. Wow. That's cool, man. Uh, yeah, history. Fucking dope. So, yeah, history. Yeah. So, I can uh, curse on the show, so that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's cool. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, because we New Yorkers, it's hard for us to talk without a, a fuck through that. <laughs> thrown yeah. in the mix. But, I mean, so, I didn't really get into how I created Graffiti Rock. If you want me to, I can. But that's kind of the timeline, you know. Right, kind of. right. Yeah, because uh, that's what we was wanting to know. Um, the where, where did you come up with the original conception to create the show? How did the idea, the inspiration just come to you to go ahead and let me go ahead and do this, this show called Graffiti right. Rock? Well, you know, even before I got involved with Ruza Blue and, and brought my hip-hop review to her club, The Grill, I, you know, I was, I was bringing artists downtown. I, was, I brought Bambada to a couple of gigs. I, I created a couple of gigs for him downtown. Grand Mixer DST Phase 2. Of course, 
uh, uh, IBM, International Breakmasters, and graffiti artists, whatever. I, I was I was along with Fab Five Freddy and maybe Charlie Ahern, who as a filmmaker was a hip hop pioneer, and 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 Henry Chalfant and and, Mar- and Martha uh, 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 Martha uh, Cooper, uh, who's a big photographer of hip hop. You know, there was like five of us. We were the ones bringing this this culture downtown and doing different things with it. Like I said, Martha Cooper was heavy into photography. Uh, 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 I think you know, Fat Five Freddy was kind of getting more and more into film. Charlie Ahern was film. Henry Chalfant was photography and graffiti art. And I was heavily involved in, in b-boying. But through the whole through that time, I was I just couldn't help but think. This needs to be bigger. This needs to go nationwide. This needs to be seen all over the country, all over the world. And what better way to do that than through a tel- than through television? And you know, I'm 62 years old, so I you know I grew up in the 60s, and I remember as a little kid seeing all these rock and roll TV shows like Hullabaloo, um, 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 what what's some of the other ones? Uh, Oh shit! I'm trying to think of them now. But there were all these, you know. Besides, obviously, you know, uh, 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 American Bandstand was obviously one of the early ones. Um, uh, but there were a lot of like shows on TV that were variety shows that were about rock and roll and soul and everything that was going on in the '60s. And I thought, you know, hip hop is as big as rock and roll. There's got to be a TV show for it, and a TV show would spread the word. And I really. Honest to God, I wasn't thinking about myself. I wasn't promoting myself. I was just thinking this is a movement that needs to be like seen. And I always thought, you know, I've got to do a TV show. I've got to do my own TV show. And that was part of the reason why I was doing so much filming with film, Super 8, and video. And then so when I was doing the, 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 the hip-hop, bringing my hip-hop review every Thursday night to the grill – uh, and partnering up with with Rosa Blue, when she then wanted to cut out and do another bigger club, and I kind of felt left out of that. I was like, okay, bet you know, I'll do my own thing. I'm forget clubs, forget you know, live audiences of a thousand people or whatever it is. I want to go for bigger audiences. I want to go into you know media. I want to go into television. And so I started small. Um, there, I found out about an opportunity to have your own public access show, which I think there's public access shows all over the country. So people know what that is. And in New York, it was like, you know, if you want your own public access show, you can't advertise, you can't really make any money on it, whatever. But if you put together a show that there's, you know, no heavy pornography or anything like that, we'll let you do it. And so I applied and I got a show. And I basically took my my, my video and, and film footage and would cut together like a, a show that involved uh, not only hip hop, uh, but also uh, you know Jean Michel Basquiat, people like that on the downtown scene. I mixed it all up. One show was called the 9:30 Show. Another show was uh, On Beat, and then um, and then TV New York was straight hip hop. You know, and, and and I even had like a little dancing, a uh, little dance uh, 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 space where kids showed up from all over the downtown East Village and, and the Lower East Side, you know, young hip-hop kids, black kids, Puerto Rican kids, white kids, hey. dancing to music, DJs, film. I had Phase 2 showed up, Fat Five Freddy showed up, all, you know, Grand Mixer, DST, all kinds of people were there, Fat, a Future, all kinds of people were getting down. 
And I would put together these couple public access shows and put them on the air. Uh, but it was, you know, limited What, how many people were seeing it, 15,000, 20,000. It was just, you know, small public access. But it, it, it just right. made me think, you know, I really want to have a national television show. And uh, through this brother who was a lawyer in, in, uh, in Boston, um, oh, what was his name? Mikkel, uh, uh, Paul McCraven. Paul McCraven, black dude who was a lawyer who worked in and around this label that put out uh, New Edition. And so he was coming to Negril and seeing what I was doing, and we were hanging out, and he knew about these cats, um, these white dudes who were investment bankers on Wall Street with, with Payne Weber, this big investment banking company. And he kind of put us together because they were putting money in the label. Uh, the the Streetwise was the name of the label that put pub, the, the, the new edition out, you know, with Bobby Brown and that whole crowd, right? right? Because that was and under so, Mercury, right? Huh? Sorry. That that was under Mercury, right? Maybe, but Streetwise would have been the smaller label that maybe Mercury then released them on, right? You know, but but it was definitely Streetwise. And so these guys, Steve Mamishian and Bob Alexander, were these two cats who who uh who were investing in 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 streetwise records and 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 whatever else that that guy who created the new edition that guy who went on to create other boy bands i think so you know they were already had a foot in the game in r&b and then when they met me and i sort of pitched the idea of a hip-hop tv show they bit you know they they went for it you know hook line and sinker and it took about a year year and a half to develop things and I would I would write proposals, write scripts, talk to people, you know, talk to people about being on, on the show, sort of working it out, getting it together, raising money. What was interesting at that stage was you could actually raise money for film or TV shows um and 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 get that money off your uh it was like it was a it was tax um tax um deductible and so a lot of people were putting money in films and TV shows and stuff and getting it off their, you know, if you put $100,000 in a show, you know, you may not take, pay any taxes that year because, you know, it would be deducted. But, and, and, wow. and, and, and Graffiti Rock was the last of those kind of projects because right after that, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, did away with that tax um, uh, um, deduction, which was fucked up because that tax deduction was made it possible for rich people or people with money to put money into projects, you know, poor artists, you know, looking for backers to make their films or their or their TV show, whatever it was, records, whatever. Now that tax deduction was gone and it hurt the art community. All of a sudden, a lot of people who would have invested in your film, whatever, now are like, forget it, I'm not going to do it. And I, I feel that was intentional because as we can see, Republicans are threatened by the creative community because they tend to be progressive, Democrats, etc. Films tend to question authority, and and so the the right wing in the in the in the in the 80s uh, crushed that. But luckily, I made it under the wire, and so all my investors got these tax write-offs. So we were able to raise a uh, raise a couple hundred thousand dollars quite easily, and and so then, you know, I was looking for a good host. You know, I thought of, of, of Fab Five Freddy, ironically enough, because he went on to become the host of, you know, MTV Raps. I thought yeah. of Mr. Magic, um, 
who uh, Mr. Magic uh, was a ra- was one of the first radio DJs in New York to do um, you know um, uh, hip hop radio, yeah. and um, uh, somehow the timing didn't work out, and people you know weren't weren't feeling it because you know they didn't know who I was or what is this thing you want to do graffiti rock whatever. And, you know, there was no money, really big money. The show hadn't been on the air yet. So it was hard to get, you know, people to get behind it. Um, So I had to, in in the end, I had to host it myself. And that's why, that's really the reason why I was the host. I I think I would have preferred, like I said, Mr. Magic or Fat Five Freddy. But, you know, it might have screwed up his his trajectory in getting on to be the host of uh, MTV Raps. But anyway... um, so, you know, and, and I knew um, Special K and Kumo D, they were friends, so I knew I was going to get, you know, Treacherous 3 on there. Unfortunately, uh, um, uh, uh, Sun, L.A. Sunshine was kind of off on a bender, and, and you know, Kumo D right. wouldn't allow him to be part of it because he really, you know, he was like, you know, getting high and, you know, going wild. Uh, yeah. Of course, I knew Bambada. Right. I wanted to get Jazzy J to be the DJ, but Bambada convinced me to, to use, um, um, uh, uh, God, who's my D? Oh my God. Now I forgot the DJ of my own TV show. Um, <laughs> Jimmy jazz, Jimmy jazz, yeah. Jimmy jazz. So I gave him a break and, and cut him in there. Um, of course the New York city breakers a crew I created, um, is going to be on the show. Um, right. I had, um, uh, and then run DMC. I mean, you know, the thing is, back in those days, you know, Russell Simmons, myself, we, you know, Freddie, you know, Charlie Ahern, I mean, we, everybody hung out together. Nobody was, you know, Russell Simmons wasn't that big of a star yet. He didn't, he hadn't blown up to the extent that he right. did, say, later in the 80s. So it was no big deal to go to Russell. Yo, Russell, you know, I'm, I'm doing this TV show. Um, would, you know, would you be down to, to have, you know, uh, Run DMC perform on the show? And and he was very generous, and 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 he he agreed, and and for no fee at all, because we didn't really have a budget, we didn't have enough money for for that, and it was there. And again, another first. That was their first television appearance. Was on Graffiti Rock. That's before, crazy. Before before wow. Soul Train. Wow. And, and and another thing about that, Mr. Michael, um, that's where Russell and uh, Rick Rubin had met for the first time. Am I right? Yeah, um, Rick Rubin. This is this is according to Rick Rubin. The legend is is that when we did a rap party, which is you know when the when the show's rap with a W W R A P right. The rap party right. is when you finish a shoot, you have a rap party for all the cast and crew and everything, whether it's a film or TV show, to come together and just have a party and celebrate the show. So when we had the rap party for Graffiti Rock. Uh, apparently, I didn't know because I was busy with a million other things, but, you know, Russell came. I knew he was there, but I didn't know Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin came, and he had already, I think, Rick Rubin by that stage had already put out uh, It's Yours. And and I was actually in the studio when they were, when, when, when uh, Jazzy J and uh, Tila Rock were uh, were cutting uh, It's Yours. I was actually, you know, in, in, in on that. And maybe... I must have met Rick. I must, you know, now I didn't, I hadn't never thought of this until just now that I must have met Rick Rubin in the studio when they were doing It's Yours because I knew Jazzy J and Jazzy invited me to come down. 
And I must have met Rick Rubin and then invited him to the rap party for for um, Graffiti Rock. So he comes to the rap party and meets uh, Russell Simmons. And he's there, of course, because, you know, Run DMC's in the TV show, on the TV show, on Graffiti Rock. And they meet there for the first time. And, and that was the, the beginnings of, uh, you know, Def Jam. Def Jam. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. I'm, I take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> I want stock. I want stock in Def Jam because if it wasn't for me, it may not have existed. <laughs> yes, sir. So, uh, what what was your memorable moments about doing the show? Because you know you had some pretty some pretty cool moments on there. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, uh, my good friend Vincent Gallo, who has now become an important kind of underground filmmaker and artist in his own right. Um, but Vincent Gallo was a good friend of mine and, and, and he, I put him in charge of, of getting the crowd, you know, getting the dance crowd together. Uh, Debbie Mazar, who, you know, became kind of a, 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 a B level, you know, of Hollywood, you know, movie star, if you will, you know, she was in, she was in, uh, Goodfellas and on LA law and, you know, and she plays the agent. Uh, she plays the publicist on Entourage, that TV show. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she was yeah. one of the dancers on the show, and Vincent Gallo was on the show, and uh, I, I remember, you know, it was, it was, um, gosh, I remember all kinds of things. Like, like, I remember uh, when I was ready to have the New York City Breakers perform to tape them. This woman from the union, from the from the, uh, uh, it was either from AFTRA, which is the TV Actors Union, or SAG, which is Film Actors Union, showed up, and I mean, and and I created this crew, you know, and I they'd performed all over the all, by this stage they probably performed all over the country, all over the world, uh, teenagers, you know, making a thousand dollars a week, you know, we were doing really well. And this agent, this 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 rep, this union rep showed up to uh, demand that they get paid this and that, and to and I was like, look, no, you don't understand. This is like this is the pilot. We're all doing this for nothing. Uh, you know, you can't. You know, and she was kind of like um, like 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 twisting my arm, or kind of like like ho- like holding up the whole the whole if, the whole project. If I didn't create some kind of contract, something weird, I was like, "You don't understand. I, I created this crew. I'm the manager of this crew. What are you talking about?" <laughs> and I, I started yelling and screaming, and and um, she backed down. She could have probably shut down the production, but she backed down. Yeah. And 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 um, you know, like just thinking of memorable stuff. I mean, it it, it the, the show went smoothly. Uh, I, I I can't think of any anything that happened that that was dramatic because other than that, you know, other than that union representative coming in trying to threaten the show, but I, you know, I believe in unions and, and, and I support them. It was just, that wasn't the time to do it. You know, come show up after, after the, a, after the show gets picked up, that was just the pilot. There was no guarantee that it was yeah. going to become a series. And to that proof of that is that it didn't. I was like too, too, I was years at, I was too, too far ahead of my time with that. You know, I put it out there right. when, you know, we put the show out. You know, it, it aired in 88 markets around the country to great Nielsen ratings. And then myself and the, the, the investment bankers is like, okay, now it's time to take it to NAPTI, 
which is the National Association of Producers of Television Entertainment, so that you know, you when you make a pilot, you have to take that pilot to to NAFTI in Vegas. It happens at the end of the year every year where people go and sell their wares, like any other convention, right? Right. You yeah. have like <clears throat> you have high tech conventions, you have car conventions, you have car shows at convention yep. centers, and people are selling their wares. Same thing happens with television. You go and you you rent a booth. And you show your TV show, and like there's like a couple of hundred people doing that, and we had to do that. And all the station managers around the country, this is after it aired, after the pilot aired around the country. Right. All those station managers, most of them, you know, were white men, middle class, middle aged, suburban. They had no idea what hip hop was. And the ones right. that did said, well, this is a passing fad. This rap thing is going to be over next year. Why would we invest? In a rap show, so that was pre- that's pretty painful to look back on. To think that you know, if they had any idea of what I knew was coming, which was that rap would take over the world, that hip hop would take over the world, they would have bought that show in a heartbeat, and yep. we would have been yep. having a completely different conversation right now. If you know what I mean, yeah. I was planning on on having my show. Uh, I would have I would have been been discovering talent putting them on the show. I would have had my own label, my own rate record label based on the talent I put on the show. I would have been developing other TV shows. I would have been Russell Simmons. Right. But I was just too far ahead of my time, you know, and, and that's a warning to people out there, you know. I mean, if you believe in what you're doing, yes, do it. But just know that when you're the first one out of the box with any kind of project, whether it's a, a hip-hop TV show or a new gadget to clean houses with. When you're the first one, oftentimes the smart people sit back and let you make the mistakes and see what you can do or don't do. Um, and then they say, aha, I see. And now I'm ready. And then they come right, and, right. and steal everything that you tried to make happen. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In my case, uh, nobody nobody stole anything from me. I mean, it, it, it was many years after Graffiti Rock aired, before, you know, Yo! MTV Raps happened. I think, what, when did right. Yo! MTV Raps? 88? Yeah, it was around 87, 88, and then yeah, like Raps four years. It came like a year two years later. Yep, so four years is a lifetime in, you know, like I was telling you, like I first got hip to hip-hop in, really in 79 with, with the Canal Zone Party and rubbing shoulders with Fat Five Freddy and, and, um, and uh, uh, the Fabulous Five. But but I was still involved in the downtown avant-garde noise art band with Basquiat. I didn't get heavy into it and start filming B-Boys until until 80 when my band broke up you know, with, band, with, with Jean-Michel Basquiat, like 80, 81. But 80, 81 to 84, three short years, so much happened with me and hip hop just and I'm sure Freddie would say the same thing. I'm sure Charlie Ahern, everybody would say the same thing. Those three short years that seem so quick today, a lifetime of things happened in hip hop right. that brought it to the world to make graffiti rock a possibility. Right. But right. but again, it was just too soon. And maybe two years later it might have gotten picked up. But at that yes. stage, no, right. no, rap, rap is a passing fad. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and another thing about that, Mr. Mike, um, 
they were saying that a couple of them, some of the people was comparing it to Soul Train. Yeah, so, yes, yes, and that's absolutely fair. That's another thing. A lot of the station managers at that time, you're absolutely right. A lot of the station managers, and they're the ones that, that buy your show for their market, for their their region, right? They were saying, well, what do we need this for? This is already Soul Train. I'm like, no, 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 that's a, that's a totally different thing. But, you know, they just see, you know, a bunch of black kids having a good time, dancing to music, and they don't get it. You know, they don't understand. They didn't understand what it was. They didn't understand right, that it was right. a whole new movement. And Don Cornelius, God bless him, because he had New York City Breakers and me and the New York City Breakers on uh, Soul Train uh, a couple of years after that. And uh, Vincent Gallo was on there with us. Um, but uh, he he particularly didn't really warm up to hip hop and didn't really like rap right. and all that. And so, and you know, and then by that, by that time, you know, uh, Soul Train kind of morphed and changed and it was really kind of going downhill. I, it really didn't have that magic that it had in the seventies and eighties or early eighties. I mean, I keep in mind, I was watching Soul Train in LA when it was coming out of LA because I was originally from California when it right. first came on the air in LA. Of course it first came out in, in Chicago, as we know, Anybody that knows the history knows that Don Cornelius and Soul Train was from Chicago originally. But, um, um, you know, it didn't really blow up until it, it, it hit L.A. where you had these crazy dancers from L.A., black kids from L.A. who were really, their 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 history, like mine, they were black kids who, whose fathers and grandfathers and all that were from were from Texas. And that's a whole different thing than than black kids in in New York who either came from the southeast or majority of them were from the you know from Jamaica and from you know the the Caribbean. Right. Totally different flavor. I mean, this is kind of I'm not. This is like a bit of a change of the subject. I'm kind of you know, but but it is kind of important when I talk about this on a historic level. Yeah. That you know, why did hip hop happen in New York? It, it couldn't have happened anywhere else. New York right. was 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 critical to you know it could have happened. There's certainly a black population that that super creative musical black population in Chicago, Philly, L.A., uh, Atlanta, Houston. But it happened in New York because because hip hop was more than just just us. It was it was it, it involved Puerto Ricans and b boying and break dancing. It involved graffiti art. It involved and and, and New York. Unlike, unlike the other major black communities like Chicago, like D.C. I should have brought D.C. into that. New York had even more of a multi-tribal mix of like you got you know like three blocks you know would be all Greek, and the next thing you know you'd be with Italians. The next thing you know you'd be like Jamaicans. The next thing you know Puerto Ricans, and and you had all these tribes shoulder to shoulder in a way that didn't exist in other cities, like just block by block. And it created this competitive nature of like, oh, well, you think your food is good? Well, check out our food. Oh, you think, you know, the way you style, the way you dress, or you think your women are cute? Check out our women. Check out our food. Check out our music. Check out the way we dance. And you had these, these, these working class tribes shoulder to shoulder, you know, block by block, Competing in a lot of different ways, and you had Chinese influence in, 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 in b-boying. You had all these different influences, and 
And if you look at hip-hop, it's so competitive. It's so like, you know, who's the best DJ? Who's the best MC? Who's the best uh, uh, rapper? Who's, and all of that comes from uh, a, a very powerful competitive nature that New York is. And, and, of course, all the big cities are, of course, as well. But it, it, it just had so much more of an international flavor, so much more flavors coming from all over the country. People wanting to come to New York, artists have always wanted to come to New York to, to make their name, you know, from the abstract expressionist and the, the pop artist and the, 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 you know, the, the, you know, everything that had been happening in the Greenwich Village and all that. And the fact that it has this strong connection to, to, to Europe and the Caribbean, it just, it just made it so much more of a, of a melting pot than L.A. or Chicago or Houston that are broken up much more into wards. And people are much more isolated in those cities, I think. Um, uh, in New York, it's all, everyone's on top of each other. And it created that, 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 that flavor that, that made it happen in New York. And, and if I'm wrong, it would have happened somewhere else. It didn't. It just right. didn't. Right. Yeah, and another thing about that now, as far as the show goes, remember they were saying that, they they wanted they wanted it more multicultural on the show because they didn't want too many black kids on the show. Yeah, that was the first thing. Was the first thing that happened was you know, and and that's where your hands as a producer are tied behind your back. We had to make a show that worked that sold to again these white middle class middle aged show man, station managers. And by the way, many did buy it, but not enough to mount a, a series. Um, but we had to include all kinds of people in the show. But I don't feel bad about that because hip hop. When I fought, when I first brought Malcolm McLaren up to Bronx River to see Bambada perform, there was it was about seventy percent black, about twenty percent Puerto Rican. There was like ten percent white kids living in those projects. There was a right. lot of white kids that were down in hip hop in the early days as graph artists, like like uh, Tra- like Mike Tracy. Um, there's a lot. There was there was something and, and Bambada always made a big thing about that 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 hip hop should be multicultural and multiracial and all that. That's kind of bending over backwards. It was obviously musically it was primarily a black thing. Even the dance was black. I mean, all the stuff that the Puerto Rican kids picked up on later um, was all freestyle dances that that black kids were doing in New York. Um, you know, drops up rocking spins but but the whole thing of spinning on your back and doing all the all the amazing you know uh wild things that you know head spins back all that was puerto rican i mean that was the black is like i'm not getting my clothes dirty g forget it you know uh and and a lot of those b-boys and b-girls like i had a conversation about this with with um from funky four plus one more shall rock she was saying all of us including she said everybody, you know, Herc, everybody. Uh, 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 what's his name from, from uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five? Uh, Melly Mel. She said everybody, all of us. We were all B-boys and B-girls first. We were dancing. We were throwing down at the clubs, at the parties, you know, DXT. All B-boys, Phase 2, all B-boys, B-girls, dancers, doing these wild foot, you know, drops, all kinds of footwork, all kinds of all kinds. And then... Eventually, everybody kind of graduated. Okay, now what am I going to do? Now I'm going to do something that's going to make more money. I got, you know, let me get into this rap game. Let me get into this DJing game. 
But everybody had been a B-boy or B-girl before him, black or Puerto Rican, didn't matter. But wow. but yeah, there was there was a, an attempt to make the the crowd in graffiti rock more uh reflect, you know, have have Asians, have whites, have blacks, have Spanish kids right. in there. Uh, there was an effort to do that because that was just self-preservation. That was like, if we don't do that, it's definitely not going to get picked up. It didn't work anyway. But believe me, right. if, if I had gotten the show picked up, I would have, I mean, this sounds maybe mean, but I, I would have definitely made it more reflective of, of hip-hop in the Bronx. I would have made it, I would have made the crowd more like, you know, 50, 60% black, 40%, right. 30% Puerto Rican. And then, right. you know, smaller smattering of white kids, maybe downtown white kids, you know. But, um, yeah, we, you know, that was just us being commercial and being careful and trying to get the thing picked up, you know. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you had the Treacherous 3 and you had Run DMC on there. And, you know, they they said that uh, Kumo D was warm beforehand not to make it an actual battle route. Right, yeah. yeah Kumo he was D known was for battle rapping. Yeah, he create he invented battle rapping. I mean, he would have ripped them all apart and it was it was it was Jam Master J who was like, Listen guys, let's not let's not make this a real battle let's make this kind of like a little more for fun. Which is you know, it's just kind of funny. Yeah, and, you know. But you know, you could see from the show where I would have liked to have taken this eventually but you know, I never got the chance. You know, but but right. even though I only had that one show and it only aired once, even though it aired in eighty-eight markets, a lot of people saw it, and I did want it. I did focus it towards like middle school kids. I did want young teenagers to dig it because I felt like they were the future of hip hop, and I and it turned out I was right. I'll never forget. This was just a couple of years ago. I was at an art opening for Basquiat. Jean-Michel Basquiat, who, like I said, was my bandmate before I got heavy into um, hip-hop. And Jean-Michel Basquiat is dead now, but but at that art show was um, Quest, uh, uh, not Questlove, uh, Q-Tip. And Q-Tip went, yeah. yeah, and Q-Tip came up to me and said, man, I just want to thank you for doing Graffiti Rock because, you know, it inspired me to get into hip-hop. And he was like that 12-year-old kid that I was kind of targeting it at. And then here he goes and, 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 and becomes Q-Tip. And I'm like, wow. I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather. It was just like it, it made it made everything that I fought and worked for in as a hip-hop pioneer like worthwhile to hear him say that. It meant so much to me, you know. Because, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not well-known to a lot of people. And right. I'm kind of one of those unsung, unsung yeah, hip-hop unsung pioneers. Either. <laughs> yes, sir. So look. So I thank you for uh, wanting to promote me a little, or to talk about me on your show. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Yeah. So look, um, I would say it was a it was an epic show, and it would have been real epic had it took off. Was it some ideas that you had for the show, but you didn't put it on yet? It's funny, you know. There's a good story I tell. It's kind of my way of defending myself because. Because this show was far from perfect. It was far, far from really great. I, it wasn't where I really wanted it to be. I always tell this story about the very... I, I was lucky to see the first pilot episode of Star Trek. 
the first show with with you know with William Shatner and and Leonard right. Nimoy as Spock, and what was bugged out was they didn't have their show completely figured out either. Spock, even though he was an alien, half human, half alien, his whole game, his whole his whole style as an actor, as a character, was crazy. It was like he was like uh, two battle stations, and he was all like intense and all like hyping everything. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, like, like Spock was always like so cool, right? So obviously they had run that show and it was like, wait, whoa, whoa, let's have, let's have the alien be cool instead of like hyped up because this isn't working, you know? Like, like the point is, is like everybody, you know, you need a chance to like put your stuff out there to make mistakes to kind of get a chance to like correct it and what have you. And I really didn't get that chance with Graffiti Rock, but here's some of the things that, that I would have done. Um... I would have definitely replaced myself with a different host. I would have had somebody else who had had a little more street cred than me. I was more behind the scenes. I would have gotten, like I said, Mr. Magic or Fat Five Freddy or somebody. If I had gotten that show as a series picked up on the air, I would have gotten a better, bigger name to be the host. Right. I still would have had a dancing, you know, a dance audience, you know, a kid's, in the audience who were dancing. But I think I told you about the demographics of how I would have changed it. And that's another thing. When, when, when Vince Gallo and I went around uh, recruiting kids to be on the show at the Roxy and other hip-hop clubs, they were like, I never heard of any graffiti rock. And they were like, nah, I don't want to do it. And, and so, I, you know, I had to really scrounge around to get, you know, to get my, my dance crew, my, my dance audience together. And I'm not, right. that's not disparaging who I had on the show. I'm just right. saying, you know, I would have had like little, little bit harder street kids in the audience, you know, a little more styling, you know, a little more like, like hard, little harder core hip hop styling right. would have definitely been at least 60 to 70% black audience with maybe 30%, like I said, Latino. And then, you know, a handful of white kids in the audience it would have been a harder audience with a harder crowd. I might have, uh, I wanted to have graffiti-styled um, platforms. We did have that, but I would have made it even more 3D graffiti that you were dancing, or like little more stylized, even though I thought what the, the, the graffiti that Brim did was amazing. I really loved it. But I would have even had, I would have had the graffiti uh, been like three-dimensional letters that you were dancing on, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I would have I would have had you know different DJs. I probably would have had a different guest DJ every show, because you know think about it. You know I would I could have had anybody from you know, Cool Herc. I could have had Jazzy J. I could have had like a hundred different like amazing DJs. So I would have had different DJs every week, and I would have continued to have had the the top uh, uh, hip hop you know acts you know artists you know uh, rappers and rap crews. Um, and I would have had, you know, I would have brought up a lot of people that were unknown, and and like I said, I would have created a label and signed them, and and had my it might have been an antitrust uh, conflict there. It might have been like people say you can't have, you you know, and there's and there's truth to that. You know, you probably can't have a label that sells records of the artists that you have on your own, also on your own TV show. It's kind of like an antitrust issue, but I would have gone for it anyway. Wow. Um, and I and I might have had Pete, and I might have had moments like like two or three minutes um 
breakaways where I could interview people like Russell Simmons or whatever and see what's going on. I would have had more graffiti on the show. I would have had more, you know, each show maybe have a different graffiti artist doing uh, giant burners in the background, you know. And and I might have gone to, I might have spent five minutes of the show to go to different locations around the city, around the country, around the world where graffiti was happening, you know, where hip-hop was happening and and put it on the air, you know, kind of like a like a moment, you know, where you're seeing what's going on somewhere else. So these, right. those are some of the ways I would have the show would have evolved for sure. After the show had after they had folded, you know, you had went on there, you had did some other stuff too because you had um you was a writer for Blues Clues. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. After you know the when we didn't sell it the first year at Napti Graffiti Rock, then we went back another year and didn't sell it again. Then I was like, okay, I got. Oh, okay. I got to do something else. So I went back to film school. I went to NYU film school. And um, from from some of the films I made at film school, I got to work on, uh, on um, not at first Blues. I did work on Blues Clues, but I, I first started working on Eureka's Castle. Was the first, I started working in children's television. I did Eureka's Castle, directing, producing, and writing for them. And then the executive producer of that went on to do Blues Clues, and he hired me to write and direct for that show for a couple of episodes. And I was really proud of that. You know, so I, I was doing television, all kinds of television, you know, hip-hop, but then children's television and, and you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, doing documentaries on TV as well. So, um, right. Yeah, yeah and, and so, because and you, you was a, a producer for B Street too, right? And what I did on Beat Street was my job was to bring in artists. So, of course, I brought in my own crew, New York City Breakers, but I also brought in Rocksteady Crew. I had an ongoing working relationship that, with them for years. Uh, I'm the one who brought in uh, the Treacherous Three to, into Beat Street, uh, introduced you know the whole Zulu Nation to uh, Harry Belafonte and David Picker. Uh, I did the the the... The most, the thing I'm most proud about Beat Street was the uh, the battle between Rocksteady Rocksteady Crew and and the New York City Breakers. The reason why I'm proud of that is because the director Stan Lathan, who was also a director on on, uh, on Soul Train, by the way, and Stan Lathan, you know his daughter, that beautiful woman, she was in Love and Basketball, and you know she's she's amazing. She's been in so many great films. What's her name? Her last name is Stan uh, is Lathan. That's Stan Lathan's daughter. So Stan Lathan's the director of Beat Street, and when and at this stage by '84, when we're shooting Beat Street, I had already been heavily involved in the New York City Breakers performing on on 20, 30 different TV shows at this stage, and I would help the TV directors know how to film them, know how to how to frame the shots, et cetera, et cetera, and what lenses to use. And so when when Stan Lathan came to me and said, "Okay, this is the battle scene. How would you suggest we shoot this?" Right. Of course, I had the answers. And I told him, I said, listen, you can't do what you would normally do on a film, which is, okay, film, and then, you know, and then say action, and then the action happens, and then you say cut, and you set the camera up in a different angle, and you change the lights, and you shoot from a d- another angle, so you have all these different angles to cut from. I said, you can't do that with this, because because the, the New York City Breakers and Rocksteady crew are right now our enemies. They're, 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 they're heavily competitive, competing with each other because 
they they want to be the number one breakdance crew in the world. And so the, the, the enmity, the competition, the, the bad blood between them was at its highest at that point. And so I said, you're never going to be able to shoot them and then say cut and then have them do it again in a way that you can capture what you want to capture from a different angle. It's not going to work. You have to capture this in one take. This is for real battle. They're not going to right. once once the battle's over. They're not going to want to do it again. You need to capture this in one take. So I suggested to him, and I'm really proud of this as a filmmaker. I said, shoot it with five different cameras all at the same time, and that's exactly what they did. They shot yeah. it from five different angles, and they lit it for all five angles. And what that did, and, and not only did that make it work so that they didn't have to cut and do another shot from another angle and blah blah blah. It worked great because it the scene that that scene cuts like butter because every other camera angle was shot at the same time the other camera angle, so everything's right. going to be exactly yeah. the same except from a different angle. So it's going to cut perfectly. Unlike say when you shoot a film, you know, or shoot a TV show or whatever, and you're shooting from this angle and then you want to cut to another angle and the actor wasn't doing the exact same thing. His hand is not in the same place, so it looks a little yeah. rough and it's hard on the editor. You know what I mean? Yeah. In this case, it was it was like butter to edit because everything that's happening from that angle, the person who's wearing that outfit and holding their putting their hand in their pocket or whatever, they're doing the exact same thing from the other angle. So it cuts perfectly. And 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 I believe even though b-boying breakdancing has evolved to, you know, to be 20 times more spectacular than it was back then. I don't think that a breakdance battle has ever been done, has ever been shot as well as that battle in Beat Street. And it's because of the multiple camera angles. Right, yeah, because that was was an epic scene. uh. Epic. And people will always refer to that battle scene as, I think, the greatest battle scene in cinema. I mean, and think about it. Between Rocksteady Crew and the New York City Breakers, it's it's epic. It's epic. So do you keep in touch with some of the guys from the New York City Breakers? Oh yeah, yeah. Like little Lep Little Lep and I are close friends. Um we hang out all the time. Bobby Potts and Little Lep hang out together and I see Bobby Potts. Um who else? Uh uh Tony Lopez is you know, Pexter and and, and Tony Drohorn, you know, Tony Wesley, Mr. Wave. He and I are really good friends. I mean, he lives in in Chicago, but I see him all the time. We we stay in contact all the time, you know. So, okay. yeah, yeah. So, Mr. Mike, you watched, you know, hip hop evolve from the beginning to what it is now. So, how do you feel about the current state of hip hop? Well, you know, there there are all kinds of things happening in hip hop that I I think are great, like like the, the uh, the rap battles are amazing. Like what's going on in the, in those the freestyle battles that you hear about the super underground, you know, they're, they're amazing. Yep. They ca- they carry on the, the tradition. There are MCs and artists uh, and, and DJs and producers who are making, you know, great stuff, but it, but it all seems to be quite on the underground. It seems like the big stars are, you know, the trap artists and, I, I don't know, man. I, I I don't feel them. I don't feel them that much. But you know what? Anyone will. Anyone who has half a brain will tell you 
that it's the job of teenagers to to challenge and uh, offend and insult and 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 push back against their parents generation and and you know if you look at it i mean i'm like a grandfather i could be a grandfather to a rap artist i mean to a trap artist today so <laughs> right. i shouldn't right. like it i shouldn't like it you know and i'm sure that you know a lot of people when rap came out you know when hip hop came out you know, they weren't feeling it, you know, and, and when rock and roll and soul came out, they weren't feeling it because it was what the younger generation was doing. And right. so, you know, I, I am curious to know that uh, I know for a fact, because I see it, I see it on YouTube, I see young kids, teenagers listening to the music I grew up on, grew up with, like, you know, yeah. whether it was Friends of Distinction or James Brown or, or whatever it was, or slow jammies from the 70s, and they're going like, you know, I see 17-year-olds saying on on YouTube posts, like, you know, I missed this time, this was great time, this music is amazing, I feel it's speaking to me, you know, I don't even like music today, I like the music from the 70s, it was so amazing, from the 60s, and it was amazing, so I can't help but wonder, I know that when people 20, 30 years after, or or even, that is now, of Run DMC, they still love Run DMC because Run, you know, they still love Diggable Planet. They still love all the great yeah. music that came out in that time. I have to wonder if people are going to feel that way about trap music, you know, thirty years from now. People are going to go, yeah, that music was great. It's like, what? I don't know. I can't see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because we always had that conversation that it is it's always that generational gap, you know, because. You know, my era is NWA and the Ghetto Boys, and right. you know my cousin who came before me. You know, they area was Curtis Blow, right. Run DMC, yeah. Right. So you know, they were like, "It's not that. That ain't real hip hop. This real hip hop." And so now here we go saying that ain't real hip hop. What we came up on was real hip hop. It's it's always but but I have a question like for that. you. I have a question. Are trap artists do they claim to be real hip hop? Or are they? Or do they yeah. say, "No, nah, we're trap." Well, to be honest with you, uh, uh, it was a couple of them that I listened to. They say that they don't like real hip hop. So some of them, it, I guess, it depends on the artist. Because I know right. one one artist say real rap puts them to sleep. They really oh. don't listen to the hip hop that came before them. Whoa, that's interesting. See, that's yeah, that's that's revolutionary because. Everything before trap, everyone always paid respect to the generation before, or the or the or the, the or the pioneers. There was always a lot of respect, you know, for the for the KRS ones, or you know, he's a new jack, really. I'm thinking, going way before him. There's always that right, respect, right. but now I don't feel that from trap artists. I think that they're like, we don't care about who's KRS one, who's who's Melly right. Mel. We don't care who's who's who's. Who's you know? Like we don't that. know. We don't care about anyone. Who's Q-Tip? We don't care. It's, you called it. It's just like that. And I don't. I'm not mad at them, but but you know, I I just I know that it's the job of teenagers and the young and 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 the twenty somethings to come up with the new thing. They've done it. They've been successful at it. I don't like it, but they're successful. They have literally come up with a new thing. It's like nothing I've really heard before 
but just but but just know this you know how you displace somebody before you you're going to get displaced exactly and, and, yeah. and i think that that trap is kind of like the tipping it's like it's the it's the it's the uh the the straw that broke the camel's back like after trap it has to return to musicianship it has to return to music to 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 even singing and people who yeah. can play instruments you know this whole idea of like getting away with you know sampling and djing and and it, it's it's got to go back to the classics yeah. to to Stevie Wonder to you know, and if it doesn't, I, I then where is it going to go? It's just like bloop, 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 bloop. I mean, what's where is the music going to be? Just like you know, like bleeps and blops. And then, oh, yeah. and then in thirty years, people could be the people who listen to trap music could be going like, I can't listen to this shit, man. What is this blip, blip, blop, blip? <laughs> oh man, you don't understand, man. You're 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 corny, man. You don't understand the blip and the blop. Blip, blop, bloop, bloop. You don't get it, man. Yeah, because. Yeah, and that was another conversation we had. We, we was like, yo, if the uh, the musicianship and the the core music gets back into the genres that we love, then that love for that that genre will come back, you know, because it's not just hip hop that's getting beat down, you know. There's a, a lot of country singers and R and B singers and rock singers. They all saying the same thing is is not what it used to be. Yeah, people are using all kinds of vocoders and. All kinds of tricks in the studio to to forgive their inability to stay on key or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> as singers. But you know, I don't know. Either either we have a revolution towards something more like like analog and going back to musicianship and all that, or we're gonna slip even deeper into something more into computers, more into Facebook, more into all this stuff in which we're not face to face and we're not working together and we're not making things with our hands anymore and we're not right. you know i don't know how far we can go down that rabbit hole because you know there may not be any coming back right we may lose the ability to be able to write a, a pop tune to be able to play music to go in the studio to you know but but i don't know i, I you know there's so many pe- that where 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 there's a chance is unfortunately it's like it has to do with with population explosion but there's so many more people in the world today so that you can uh, have a band that plays real music and, and be able to support themselves if they can, you know, play live and all that. People are, you know, getting into it. it, it it's got to go back to that. And and we'll see. We'll see if, if the cliche that all the great hip-hop songs have been written already, we'll see if that's true. We'll see if it's possible to write new music and songs with like a verse chorus you know intro outro singing and guitars and drums and bass and you know can that can it be done or does everything have to be you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so mr mike you want to give in a shout out is this where does this go international and national where does this go yeah it goes everywhere all well, you know, shout out to all my hip-hop pioneers, you know, from back in the day. You know who you are. People that, that set me up, that helped me uh, find my game and, and my voice. Thank you to the New York City Breakers, to Rocksteady Crew, to Cold Crush Brothers, to Treacherous Three, to Run DMC, to 
to my band Gray, to to my boy Nick Taylor, to my wife Sarah. Um, you know, just shout outs to the pioneers and shout outs to all the people right now in their basement or in their bedroom working on a new thing, coming up with something new and different and exciting that's going to change the world and it's going to make the world a better place. Shout out to everybody who's trying to create harmony amongst human beings because that's what we're meant to do. As that's, that's what evolution is about. We're evolving, moving into the future in spite of clowns like Trump and people like that. We are evolving. We are getting better at loving each other. We are like notes in a song that harmonize to create a beautiful sound. That's what human beings are trying to do when we evolve. We're trying to harmonize. We're trying to make a beautiful sound, a beautiful noise, so that we have a future, that, so that there's something left of the world. You know, Thank you to those right. people and shouts out, shout outs, and shout outs to, to you guys in this show. Thank you for having me on. I'm really honored to have been given this, this platform to, have, to say my piece and, and let me know when you want me on again. You know, we talk about other stuff. All right, this is Michael Holman, New York City hip-hop pioneer from back in the day, giving a shout-out and telling you all out there to listen to Graffiti Talk Radio. Peace. All right, another hip-hop story told by another hip-hop legend. And you heard it here first at Graffiti Talk Radio. Peace and may old-school hip-hop live forever. One.